Hi everyone, welcome to the Two Nobodies podcast. I'm your host, Rupesh Patel. Just had a fantastic conversation with my friend, Dr. Stuart McGill. We talk about world-class athletes. What are the characteristics of these athletes? From the speed athlete to the strength athlete to the elastic athlete, like that golfer, that thrower. What has he seen over his years working with these high elite individuals? We talk about recovery. We talk about what are the deficits that we're seeing from a training and coaching perspective that continue to hinder some of these athletes from reaching that next level. I've always wanted to have this conversation with Stu. It's been years in the making, to be honest. I'm glad we had it. I think there's some new things in there that you probably haven't heard from him uh, that we really get into and at that sort of technical elite level of the conversation. So enjoy, like, subscribe, and we'll see you in the next episode after that. Thanks. Welcome to the Two Nobodies Podcast with my dad. Stu, my friend, really good to see you. Welcome back to my podcast. It's always an honor to have you on my show. It's been three years since we had like this kind of longer conversation i promise i'm not going to put you in this kind of vulnerable spot this time we're going to talk about like spiny things and like your 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 expertise here so but you know if you want to get a little vulnerable we could do that too but welcome back well thanks so much uh, rupesh it's fabulous to uh see you it's it's always nice to see you and um you know you when you emailed maybe a couple months ago you're talking about how you started eating Indian food again. I was like, what is going on? This man is like really embracing Indian culture or something about celebrating Diwali. Like what is going on with you? Well, we, uh, I live in a small town, Gravenhurst, Ontario, and we had a new restaurant come to town called the Essence okay. of Spice. We love it. It's fabulous. Yeah. It's becoming very popular, uh, in town. It's the, uh, opposite of a greasy spoon as you can imagine. <laughs> and, uh, I've also consciously uh, made some lifestyle changes. Oh. And I remember when you were a student, you'd come over for a barbecue and all of that sort of oh, thing. And we'd be, yeah. we'd be going for beers at, uh, what was it, sure. at our campus pub or whatever, yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, now I've uh, consciously cut back on a lot of that. And, okay. Uh, yeah. What's, what's driving that? Uh, several things. I uh, had uh, my physical uh, a little while ago. Uh, my physician is now one of our former students, <laughs> who okay, you may remember, I don't know. But uh, in any case, a funny story about that. I, I called him up a few years ago and I'd heard he'd uh, be become a local doc and uh, he reminded me, he said, well, you know, you wrote my letter of recommendation to get into med school. And when you wrote that, you said, of course, I'm going to write this letter because I'm going to need a doc when I'm an old man. <laughs> and so we both had a good laugh over that. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I, uh, my uh, uh, LDL was yeah. a little high okay. uh, and right on the cusp of... Uh, the guidelines for recommending Crestor or Lipidor or something like okay. that. Well, he knew yeah. me well enough and he said, yeah. uh, you, you, you don't want to take a med <laughs> anyway. No. So I said, well, let's run an experiment. Let's let me consciously do what I can. And uh, through, through diet, my exercise was already pretty good. Okay. And let's see, can I switch to olive oil, uh, less red meat, more mm. vegetarian 
uh, based meals, uh, etc. Well, of course, I moved the markers, and three months later, we redid the bloods, and I was much better. Oh, fantastic! Um, I also do. You, have you ever heard of Peter Atia? Uh, yes, I have. Heard okay, Peter so Atia. Peter, he's known as the longevity doctor. He wrote yeah, a yeah, book yeah. called Outlive. Anyway, I'm I'm uh, on his podcast uh, next week. I guess it is. Nice. Well, it was pre-recorded uh, a month or two ago, so I know how it went. But uh, reading his book, Outlive, and getting into some of his wisdom uh, also gave me the uh, impetus to uh, take care of the four horsemen, as he calls them, which is uh, uh, Alzheimer's, mm. uh, um, metabolic syndrome, which, mm -hmm. you know, I'm pretty skinny these days. It's, it's, mm. That's not my, my big one. Uh, cardiovascular mm. and uh, cancer. And I thought, all right, well, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying the heck out of life right now. I'd like to keep it going just a little bit longer in this current healthful state. Yeah. So that was the other uh, motivation uh, as well. Were you, were you resistant a bit to lifestyle changes, would you say? or like? Well, you know me, I love beer and mm -hmm. I love chocolate. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. I would, I, I've always been good at keeping on a weight. So okay. my diet was simply this. If I'm one pound over 180 pounds, no beer, no chocolate, it's easy. Okay. If I'm under 180, I can have all the beer and chocolate and eat whatever I want. <laughs> yeah. So that's uh, been my uh, check and balance system, right. so to speak. Um, it was hard to... Uh, mm even though I'm under my threshold weight to say, so I, I don't drink and, uh, no way. Yeah. And I, uh, very rarely would I have a, a beer now, maybe one, uh, every two weeks. And I have to have a rule on that. It would only be with someone else who I enjoy. Okay. So the, yeah. Was it hard to give up and change? Yeah, it really was, but I you don't think about it. And again, you know me well enough. You just be quiet and do it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That. yeah that would that would have been very difficult was it kind of incremental or was it all at once that change like that and you've yeah, been pretty so. good with it like you've been disciplined about it oh, yeah yeah if i say it i'll do it that's pretty good yeah because especially <laughs> the, the that well the beer thing like i know i know that you would you would have maybe a drink a day or something i, I oh at I least like. yeah at least yeah 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 so, yeah, so stories with, with some of my old colleagues, you know, we, we'll meet at a uh, conference in uh, some place in the world and, yeah. and enjoy the local beers together. And then we'll sit back and think, oh, well, we, we had beers together in uh, Melbourne, Australia, uh, you know, Thailand or Japan yeah. or Poland or Spain or wherever it was. And it just was those great times to spend with your colleagues, talk a little bit of shop and a lot of, uh, a little bit of, you know, f fun things. Anyway, it's a, so, it's a social thing, that. right? It's a social thing for you. So it was, it was yeah. more of a, a celebration of my day with me. I, yeah. Yeah. uh, again, uh, I had to do something tangible every day. Mm. Otherwise I felt I wasted it. Sure. So, uh, I'd, uh, do the tangible thing, complete the list and have a beer. So the beer was the completion of the list every day and, and just, you know, that, that I, final. 
putting your I still I still remember Stu you would tell me when I we were working in the lab you'd say Rupesh you work hard this week and the beer will taste sweeter I remember you'd always say that to me that's right yes that's so, right so if you don't earn the beer it, it, it didn't taste quite as good but when that's right. you uh, bleed a bit and sweat a bit the beer yeah. tastes better yeah well that, that's great to hear Stu I'm glad I'm glad that you're making these changes it's really I'm really glad that you've like you're taking this seriously and you're making and the blood work is showing up really well like that's that's fantastic news your family's probably super thrilled about this Catherine is probably really happy I I, I don't know if I've really talked much about it to tell you the truth oh okay yeah they, yeah. they don't ask I don't tell <laughs> okay. fair enough fair enough we've got fair more enough. important things to have fun with yeah I guess so well, that's great. Well, um, yeah, I'm glad that I'm glad that things are feeling well. I'm glad that you're healthy. Um, I want to talk. I want to focus today on the world class athletes, the the elites. Um, you know, not the average athlete. I've always had this fascination. I've always loved talking to you about this topic. Um, but before we get into that, I want to understand because actually I don't know this part of your story, like how you got involved in looking at athletes and like. When you went from like a researcher to then becoming more of this kind of clinical researcher, I don't know if will you categorize yourself that way, but um, when did that transition start to happen? And like, what was that peak? What was that peak of interest for you to be like, I got to start focusing on the clinical side of things and not just pure research? It's not as planned or premeditated as you might think. Okay. Uh, I don't know if I found the athletes as much as they found me, which sounds mm. strange. So as you know, I started as a young professor, just probing, how does the back work? Right. And I would speak at a conference perhaps, and there might be some team doctors there. And uh, they would say, okay, well, that, that's interesting. Uh, it may solve one of our players or athletes who's uh, impeded in their play right now because of their back. Would you come and uh, have a look at this player? And, and originally I was reluctant because I wasn't trained as a clinician. And they'd say, mm -hmm. well, don't worry, we'll, we'll be with you. C come and see and, and tell us what your background and, and training mm -hmm. uh, sees. And uh, you know, I learned we, you, you, you know how we used to work, would be able to offer uh, insights that they never thought about. For uh, example, um, they would talk about back pain as if it was like leg pain, very mm. nonspecific. So this was very different for them to see our approach of there's no such thing as nonspecific back pain. It's all highly mm. specific. Mm. We get to the specific pathways through probing the athlete. So here's how we're going to probe them. We'll listen to their stories and put together patterns, pattern recognition. Oh yeah, it's really bad when I get out of bed in the morning. Okay, so there's something curious about laying in bed that sensitizes them and then they get going or they might say, oh no, it's when I bend backwards to the right, you know, some, mm -hmm. some very specific uh, stressor. So that was uh, a switch for them to realize what worked for one athlete was poison for the next. Mm -hmm. So it was mm -hmm. the specific back pain that led them down to specific treatments, specific dosages, specific right. progressions and regressions. The other thing that uh, really uh, shaped them, I think, um, 
was this idea of internal mechanics and external mechanics. Most people, when they hear the word biomechanics, their brain is, you know, not developed in this area in mm. that they think of external mechanics. So the person mm. bends over and they hold right. the load far or close right. to them and they get it. The right. external mechanic of holding a load far away really loads up uh, mm. their back. But that's not where the magic occurs to intervene. It comes from the internal mechanics. Now, all of okay. a sudden, posture really matters. You mm. can bend over with a flexed spine, an extended spine, a twisted spine, and that totally redistributes the stresses internally on the tissues. Mm. And, and, you know, all these internet arguments and discussions and whatnot would be solved if the foundations of the argument shifted from external mechanics to internal mechanics. You know, people will say, oh, well, posture and technique doesn't matter. Well, come on, the coaches know that. Right. Um, but the uh, tr translation and understanding internal mechanics. So those are the two major things that I think we contributed and more coaches, teams, uh, would would call so that's why i said i think they found us yeah and yeah the more consulting we did the more confidence we got in realizing well we do have a different view with with just what is the the pathway and um the internal mechanics uh, side of things so i, for, I don't know if that answers your for, question for, for a coach for a strength coach or whatever or just for any coach how would you explain that sort of difference with external and internal mechanics? Like how, do, how should they interpret that difference? Well, I'll, I'll take them to their sport. Yeah. So if it was uh, MMA, uh, let's do an arm bar. Okay. Doesn't, doesn't do anything. Change the angle three degrees. Mm -hmm. They know how to do that. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, okay, what did you do? You didn't really change the external mechanic. What mm -hmm. you changed was you migrated the stress to a vulnerable tissue through three mm -hmm. degrees of change. And they say, I get it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Or you know, it might be uh, a very subtle little change in a golf swing, or mm -hmm. the interplay between the elastic recoil and when the muscle pulse occurs. You know, g good athletes understand this when when you can get in their world uh, and demonstrate it. So, uh, actually, now that you've reminded me of that, understanding the sport. Uh, demand is critical. And, uh, you know, if you don't understand, like I know you understand uh, how to dunk a basketball mm. or something like that mm -hmm. with your, your, your experience in that. So yeah. you would yeah. relate to that example of how you would, you know, create the pulse in the gluteal muscles, extend yeah. the hip and push a stiffened core to right. uh, propel uh, a long airborne time yeah. uh, and, and how you can manipulate your body uh, midair. And that's external mechanics yeah. now to yeah. uh, get the center of mass. Uh, would it also be understanding just like how all the tissues that are involved in that movement and how they're all working with each other, you know, even just like the, the neural pathways and how things are firing and, and what's needed. Like I would imagine all that is kind of involved too. Oh, absolutely. As you yeah. know, we can create the same external movement pattern, yes. which again is an external uh, mechanic yeah. through 
a highly redundant system such that many different muscle sequences, fascial tensions, ligament yeah. recoils, uh, et cetera, would create the same external movement. But the internal mechanic will be very different in the stress concentrations that they're producing. And when a, a patient says, oh, or, or the athlete will load that particular uh, tissue, create that particular stress concentration, and they say, ouch, okay, well, now we got it. It was the internal yeah. mechanic that drove that. Yeah, like the hip hinge is a common run, right? Like I think people are understanding the the benefits of a, a proper hip hinge, but then if their hamstrings are the ones that are doing the work and not their glutes and they're not thinking about that, right? That's like a, that would be a, a, a you know, there that's that specialization that that coach is probably missing, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what's, what about the athlete like that when you started getting involved with these athletes? Like where was the, was your curiosity starting to just get enriched at that point? Like what was it about the athlete that really made you feel curious about what they do or even just about what you were researching, I guess? As you know, I've always tried to master the craft. Mm. So uh, I would work with um, odd people that I didn't have much expertise in. So say, uh, you know, this is complicated stuff. Mm. Uh, I remember I was an expert witness in a murder case. You mm. know, this person got a broken neck. Uh, did the perpetrator, alleged perpetrator, had the manual strength to create the fracture in the neck? I mean, you you got to know your mechanics to sure. stand yeah. on a witness stand and uh, answer these kinds of things. But the uh, forensic, uh, what was she called now? She was a professor of forensic anthropology. Okay. And... Uh, all of the different nuances of the neck and the hips and the pelvis. And this was before DNA, uh, by the mm -hmm. way, was commonly used to identify people. Mm -hmm. um, but she would look at different regions of the world and, and have a pretty good guess as to where that particular skeletal musculotendinous conformation came from. Yeah. What genetic haplogroup. And this was all fascinating stuff to me. And I, you know, I just learned so much from her. But my point is, I've always made a paint point of not going to the biomechanics meetings, but going to all these other meetings where mm -hmm. I would keep mastering the craft of, from all of these different uh, perspectives. So that would be uh, one answer to the question. And the other one was, um, let's take the example, and I use this a lot. Say you're a car mechanic. Mm -hmm. uh, if you were a car mechanic who wanted to be a master car mechanic and uh, someone said, would you work on my uh, Bugatti? Mm. Next guy comes and says, would you work on my Ferrari? <clears throat> would you work on my F1 Honda? Right. Now, what car mechanic would say no to that? They get to drive the pinnacle of engineering automotive engineering. So I get offered to play with basically the, uh, what's the word, the, the, the most highest performing human mm. in doing a particular thing, that sport mm. in the world. Uh, what motivation do I need? I don't no, need any can't get better than that, yeah. Yeah, I, I get to drive the human Ferraris yeah. and see what it is that uh, 
allows them to create that performance, that injury resilience, that, you know, the full gamut. So was anyway, was, I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. It does. I was it's a say, no-brainer like, for me. <laughs> yeah. What, what part of that... Um that exceptional human, would you say you started looking at? Like, I remember there was early day, well, I don't know, early, early days, but like, I remember when we worked together, used to talk a lot about the anthropometry of somebody, right? Like just, and how that made such a difference in whatever skill they're working on or whatever sport they're in. More recently, you know, I hear you talking more about the, the neurological pathways and neural drive and all that. So like, you know, there's different elements to these people that I've seen you be curious about. What were, what were those early curiosities kind of focused on? Do you remember? Uh, yeah. Uh, there was certainly a progression in that. You're taking me back, uh, I hate to say it, 45 years, Rupesh. Oh, God, 45 I don't remember years. a lot of this. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, but I, I remember meetings with, um, there was a professor, I don't know if he's still a professor at Penn State, Steve uh, Piazza. And okay. he would look at the feet of Olympic sprinters and mm-hmm. notice the uh, calcaneus length versus the forefoot length. And in order to be a sprinter, you needed a certain ratio. Otherwise, you just couldn't produce the, the fast uh, speed. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that was interesting. And when, when you look at a badger who is a digger versus a cheetah, which is a mm-hmm. speed machine, mm-hmm. the length of those levers are uh, consistent with what the distribution of human uh, anatomy is. But when you plot those uh, against the people who are the fastest in the world, versus the best jumpers, versus the best squatters, mm-hmm. versus the, you know, the, 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 uh, and uh, you said fly with this uh, podcast, so I will. Yeah. Um, isn't it curious when you watch a, a triathlon, so three mm-hmm. very different athleticisms, mm-hmm. the person who comes out of the swim, whether it's a lake or a whatever, uh, they come out first I can't ever remember an incident uh, where that that person wins the triathlon. Mm. So the athleticism that allowed them to be a fish and beautiful uh, usually ends up being very counterproductive to running. Right. Because, you know, running is uh, tuning the body with the appropriate stiffness, which stores and recovers spring energy efficiently Mm. to propel you. The, uh, Storage and recovery of the elastic system is polar opposite for a swimmer. You want a big floppy foot yeah. where it can again be a fish fin. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, these are examples where uh, we, we then get into specific athleticisms. And uh, anyway, I, I don't know if. if and, uh, no, and that's a good example. And, and like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, you, I think the very elite swimmers, like their torsos are larger than, are, are much larger than the average person, right? Like they're able to kind of just be able to store more air and that maybe is helpful with their buoyancy. And for, for elite runners, you see they're very long legged. Um, I imagine there's some difference there. Am I wrong about that? Well, uh, no, I don't think you're wrong in principle. Um, the torso of many swimmers is surprisingly long because that's mm-hmm. adding more uh, to the, to the length of the swimming body, so to speak. And, and, mm. you know, particularly in a butterfly swimmer, that is right. uh, 
very, very much part of the propulsive uh, mechanism. But, you know, when you say a runner, okay, well, I can go to the great distance runners who tend to be longer in the leg. Uh, mm. But certainly I wouldn't say that about the great sprinters. Yeah. But uh, how we do that, as uh, you'll recall, we'll take a team, for example, and I go back to your work on uh, volleyball uh, mm. jumping as well. Mm. And we could take the players and arrange them tallest to shortest when they're mm -hmm. standing and number them off one through 14 or whatever yeah. it is. And yeah. then ask them to sit down on the bench and redo it. And you'll see the order changes. So what yeah. we just uh, measured was torso and leg length as part of their total height. Yeah. And uh, as you know, from jumping mechanics, those with long legs tend to be hip, don yes. hip dominant, yeah. firing the glutes. Uh, not terrific power production through the ankle. In fact, I, we just want a stiffer uh, link between the, yeah. the, the knee and the ankle. Whereas if you take a, a longer bodied, shorter legged person, they tend to be more of a knee jumper. So mm. we'll see them, you know, more in, a, in an upright posture, knees coming forward and jumping right up. A totally right. different jump mechanic. So there's yeah. another example. And, and a now, wouldn't it be nice if coaches were aware of that and think of strength coaches who they will take a volleyball team and they now give every player on the team, the strength, the same strength training regimen, mm -hmm. when clearly <laughs> the tallest player will probably, the, the longest legged player will use a very different, uh, you know, one is a back squatter. One is a front squatter. One will be a, a, an impulse storage and recovery. Uh, mm -hmm. elastic machine where the other really uses concentric muscle contraction. Yeah. <laughs> so again, totally different tuning of the springs. On, on the, uh, with, with the strength coaches, I, this was my next question is that, do we still see, cause I know you've talked about like when you've worked with Eastern European athletes, those coaches get it. Like they'll select the right athlete for that whatever skill or sport that they need to have them perform in. Like they'll, they'll make sure that the athlete has certain anthropometrics to, to be able to do that skill properly. Um, do you find that it's kind of common now for the world-class athlete? Like they're, they find the right design, rightly designed person to be able to do that sport. Or do you think there's still a, a gap there that people are not as coaches are not understanding? Yeah, uh, several things are going through my mind, and I'm trying to go through some of the recent examples. Certainly, there's an Eastern European Russian culture of uh, sports training, and my bias is they are generally more aware of the elastic uh, components, um, certainly in terms of strength development, I would say. But then again, you know, I go to the U.S. and, uh, uh, you know, I think of like a sprint coach like Dan Paff, who mm. is uh, so savvy in uh, terms of optimizing all of these things. He knows how to do it. And, and there's a reason why he has wonderful uh, success. I've got mm. a few stories about him if you want to <laughs> hear about them. But um, I... I I would say, though, 15 years ago, and my timing might be off on that, mm. uh, prior to that, there weren't really personal trainers around. This is, this is a new phenomenon. Now, where did okay. all these personal trainers come from? And uh, what is their training and understanding of, of these levels? 
Um, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but as you know, all the only person who would ever come here is someone who wants some consulting for their back issue. Mm -hmm. So that, that, they're coming with a back issue. Yeah. I would say over half of them and probably even a bigger percentage have been caused by their trainers and coaches or at least made worse. So that, that that's not a strong endorsement on the current practice of getting to the root of the of 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 why this athlete is mm. pain to the point of being disabled unable to play and train mm -hmm. and then using the appropriate tools to get them out of pain and then understanding the process of the demand of the sport and now we have this person Let's measure them to see, do they have the variables to meet the, the demands of the sport? And if they do, great. I'll bet you yeah. they don't go. There will be a few. What are the few that need to be focused on to retune, bring into balance? So now that's not common. Even at the world-class levels too? Well, I, I'd be out of business if it was. Fair. Yeah. I mean, there'd be no need for my consulting if, if that was true. That's uh, interesting because I mean, like this is, I mean, last time we worked, I worked with you was like how many 14, 15 years ago. And you were talking about this then and even years before that. And so to think that this is still a deficit is very interesting to me. Well, I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm certainly not a household word. I, I, I'm sort of an unknown in 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 the public, uh, in the mainstream spirit. maybe. But that 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 circle, like the the training circle, the physio circle, whatever, like you're known. People know who you are. Well, I again, I'll I'll go back to what I started with. I I think there's an impediment there of uh, until these groups get to the level of of understanding the difference between internal and external mechanics mm -hmm. and making the leap that they're not dealing with back pain. Mm -hmm. No, that, that, that's just a symptom mm -hmm. until they get at the mechanism and the specificity of right. that individual's back pain. Right. To understand what's the mechanism, the specifics. Yeah. Uh, and, and these are impediments that, uh, you know, they're, they're, uh, taught in school about nonspecific uh, back pain and, uh, yeah. you, you know, their subcategorization skills or, you know, I go back to some of my clinical mentors and, and, you know, I think of someone like Jeff Maitland, the great mm. physio from uh, Australia mm. who believed in differential diagnosis going through the neurology, the, the orthopedics, the anatomy, the personality, the learning style, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, all of these things so that you can interpret and do pattern recognition, listening to being that know, true detective, right? Right. Yeah. And uh, I would say the physios back then were far better at assessment and whatnot mm. uh, than, than what I'm seeing now. So that's it's a kind of a harsh thing to say, but I'm afraid that's my uh, current opinion.
Now, I'm not saying all physios. There no. are fabulous uh, yeah. physios, but I'm just saying in general. And, and I think the uh, influences of social media. Yeah, uh, yeah. Who, who's on social media? The, the people that I know, I mean, gosh, darn, what are we now coming into February? We got the Olympics coming up. That's a four-year mm. cycle for us. I get real busy every four mm. years <laughs> because athletes are, you know, tapering down for the uh, trials and, and then on to the big show. So all these people who claim to be working with these great athletes should be so darn busy right now that they've got no time for uh, Facebook or whatever it is. And, and yet I think a lot of kids are listening to the influences on, on Facebook, mm-hmm. which. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, like, I think, I think for me, it's, uh, it's acceptable in my mind for like, if you're just working with the, well, I wouldn't even say it's acceptable for me, but like, uh, I can understand, I guess, or for, if you're working with the average athlete, not the world-class athlete that perhaps you're not, you know, maybe there's processes that are being shortcutted or, um, or you're not being that true detective. But when we're talking about the world-class level, like you just talked about, we're in Olympic year and you're still seeing, um, people shortcutting the process or not diving deep and understanding the mechanisms and the root causes behind why their athlete might be suffering or whatever it might be. That to me is, is I'm just, honestly, I'm still surprised. I'm very surprised. We've had conversations about this before. I just, I don't get it. I don't get it. Oh, okay. Maybe I can, I'll soften it a little bit now. So the demand of a sport at the elite level is as high as it possibly can be. So the athlete is challenging their system, their body, their mind, and everything else to get to the pinnacle. That, that, that is a stress. Now, we know that every system is ruled by a tipping point. Mm-hmm. The idea is don't cross the tipping point in your training so mm-hmm. that you damage something and now you've created a loss. And, and one of the keys is loss control. Losing through injury, that's a big deal. If you can Mm. avoid injury, uh, you don't necessarily have to be. It's asymmetric, in other words. Mm. The Mm. gain from a little athletic gain is not as big as the loss of an injury. I see. You you see what I mean? Yeah. But now think of the trainer and the coach. They are dancing on a knife edge as they bump up against the margin of, uh, of, of the tipping point. That margin of safety goes to a razor thin now. So mm-hmm. if you don't push it, you won't get there. And sometimes you make a boo-boo. I do. We all do. Mm-hmm. And uh, Or maybe the athlete slept funny. Their neck mm-hmm. was in a funny position. Mm-hmm. And so, it, it, sorry for the language, but we're all familiar with shit happens. Yeah. And so sometimes shit happens. And, uh, you know, the, the, the injury uh, occurs. Um, but I will say this, it's a real art and a science mm. to know where the tipping point is. And not only do you have to know the art and the science, you have to know the athlete and you have to know how quickly do they heal and recover? How, how quickly do they recover from a very intense training cycle? And maybe you got your cycle wrong. The cycle should have been five days instead of 10 days. Maybe it should have been two days off. Maybe it should have been, oh, 
if only we had a little bit of deep tissue guru work mm. on that mm. particular snag that that athlete is dealing with, you know, uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> I can that, go on and on, no, but until we have a person in front of us, it's all pie in the sky stuff. We need someone in front of us that can really hone the discussion if that's where you, you wanted to take this level. And then I think people would appreciate that, uh, if it was easy, everybody could do it, but yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, that's good context. Um, yeah, sorry. I'm just thinking about that. That's, I like, I like the way, yeah, I understand. Like if, 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 um, they're trying to manage that loss control, that's an interesting way. I've never thought about that to be honest. Um, yeah. Um, what I was going to ask you next There's was, a book called, yeah. uh, anti-fragile by Nassim Taleb. Do you, do you know that book? I, I heard, I heard, I heard this, I have heard of anti I haven't read it, but I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. So Nassim, uh, if, if you read that book, you'll see there's a, a, a little paragraph. Um, uh, low back disorders by McGill is the medical example of uh, loss control. Don't lose. <laughs> right. And uh, it creates the anti-fragile uh, back. But uh, anyway, there, there's a little bit of a, a link to what uh, business people would know as loss control. And it's exactly the same principle in uh, uh, human performance development. Yeah, yeah. Um, on like the, the neurological pathway, the focus on the neurology of an athlete, like you've talked more, more and more about like neural drive and things like this. Um, is that something that, is that an area that you continue to be fascinated by? Yes. Yeah. And what's, what, what about it do you think is, is, is appealing or compelling for you? If I had two people and I said, grab my hand and squeeze mm -hmm. as hard as you can. Mm -hmm. And one person gives you a wet fish effort and say, I'm not joking now, squeeze my hand as hard as you can to show me yeah. your strength. And if you're unable to show me your strength, you're going to die. Wow, that's a pretty heavy context. I better show mm. some strength. Mm. And they still don't know how to do it. And then the next person comes in with such a beautiful, competent, they understand hand mechanics. The strongest part of the hand is between the meat of the hand and the base of the fingers, the lobster grip, mm. lock that in. And then you can feel their strength coming through every single finger. There's no deficits there. Right. And they know how to stiffen proximally and just create a grip strength. That's just awesome. And by the way, that's what you want. If you're holding an opponent's hand away and you're yeah. in a combat situation, yeah. like in MMA or something like that. So grip strength is, is, is a big deal. And yet some people are just so unaware that they cannot connect their brain with their hand in this, in this very simple demonstration. So what is strength? Strength starts as a thought. And I don't know if, we're, if you want to go through this. Go but for it, yeah. Yeah, strength starts as a thought. You have to densify that thought. Some people don't know how to do this. Mm. And then you have to convert that thought into electrical impulse, which are nerve pulse trains, and then they have to transmit down the nerves, get to the muscle, and then you need a certain wisdom to translate the pulse trains into force. So there's a hell of a lot, hell of a lot of 
components yeah. there to work on. Where's the failure? Well, the first thing is the person doesn't even know how to think to create uh, strength. So now we study the great strength athletes and they go to a mental place. They, they flip a switch and mm. they unleash the fuse box. Uh, and uh, as, as you know, if you go to a strength competition, say take powerlifting, for example, you'll see the athletes swearing, screaming, mm -hmm. slapping their face. Mm -hmm. you'll, you'll see it in combat situations yeah. in the combat sports as well. Taking their brain to a place where they condensify those thoughts. Now, MMA is a little bit different because you also have to relax. If you use too much strength, you get stiff. You have no speed. Yep. Or you're, yep. if you're fearful, you, you stiffen right. up. And, you know, the whole preparation with the combat athletes is to flow, dance to the music coming in to the cage and all of these strategies that people don't realize what it's all about. They think, oh, that's cool music. No, that athlete has to stay loose and relaxed to get the speed mm. because if they get tense and afraid, they're done. But back to the strength athlete. So you'll find a lot of the power lifters go to this, I call it the dark place to densify with with almost a flight or fight kind of rage that they can densify that but you know here's human variability again you, you you've heard of uh, i know you have uh bill kasmar he was the mm -hmm. world's strongest yep. man for the first three years that they ran the competition and uh, you know I, I i know bill uh he's he's different bill is such a cerebral uh thinker um he, he thinks through how he's going to achieve this next feat of strength and, and usually pulls things out that all the other strong men miss. But um, uh, Bill will say, uh, I, I do it very differently. I don't go to a place of, of uh, darkness. I go to a place of light. Well, he's the only guy I've ever heard of, and I'm not going to argue with him. Um, and, and how, uh, well, I, I can tell story after story about Bill on how he densifies neural drive, but he feels the power of the Lord invading his body and supernatural things happen. Mm. But if you're with him, you'll see a little bead of sweat start to pop up here. And then mm. all of a sudden he starts to sweat and he goes goose pimply. And then he just crushes the uh, strength thing. So he has that ability to transform uh, his mind and, and densify the neural drive. So again, I'm, I'm giving you a spectrum now of, of how uh, some people do it, but the, by far the most common, they have to flip a switch and go to that dark place. Then the next link is to form the pulse train. Now that basically the nerves are wires, electrical wires, and they have to carry the, the, the pulse train. So we, we yep. can train that, you know, say uh, a grinding bench press, get under a heavy load, have spotters, be right on the edge and grind through it. Okay, well, how do you grind? You grind, you use the lats, you bend the bar, you spread the bar, you pull the bar apart, you change the stiffness through your back and get a bench out of your back into the bench of the... <laughs> do you see what I mean? There's, there's a lot of grinding there and that's teaching the nerves to carry heavy, uh, dense uh, signals. Mm. Then there's the speed aspect. Um, I'll, I'll use an example of uh, Brian Carroll, who you know currently holds the uh, 
largest squat record of any human. Yep. He squatted 1,306 pounds. Um, well, I've been with Brian and I've seen this twice. This is amazing. We were sitting out on his back porch and a house fly flew by. He snatched it. There's the fly. Now, you tell me how many anybody in this world can snatch a flying fly. And I've seen him do it twice. So his neurology is so special that he can create that speed. And, and people, I, I've, I've heard these analogies. Oh, the power lifters are the dump trucks of the athletic world. Well, they may be. They are grinders and they lift the heaviest loads, no mm -hmm. question. But they also have a neurology where they can densify and create that speed. So you get a, a guy like Brian who's just so quick. And, you, you know, watch him deadlift 600 pounds. It's boom. <laughs> the load is yeah. up. So he just rips it off the ground. So when he goes to lower loads, he still has that density. But the momentum uh, obviously uh, has to be built and it will result in a, in a slower uh, speed. But um, anyway, uh, I'm, I'm giving you all of these examples of the many different variables that go into grading speed. And then we look at all the inhibitors that people then put into place, unbeknownst to them and even to the coaches. A few recognize how to get rid of the impediments, but, but some don't. <laughs> I, I want to talk about that, but before we get into that, I don't know if this question makes sense. Is there like a, is there a conscious versus unconscious neural densification? Like the ones who do, the ones who create this neural densification really, really well, would you say that it's less, it's less of a conscious thought? It's more, um, it's, 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 and, and becomes, it, it maybe, maybe initially there's it, but it becomes more of a, a subconscious kind of drive that happens after because i can imagine and this is this is a terrible personal example but if i'm if i'm lifting if i'm i find that if i'm very conscious about okay i gotta stiffen all these kind of things up and like hold that stiffness and consciously think about it as i'm like going through a squat i feel like i'm more uh likely to kind of um fail as I'm going through that squat in terms of maintaining stiffness. But if I, if I create that initial stiffness, be conscious about it, and then I just kind of let it go, I find that that stiffness holds a lot better. I don't know if that makes any sense, uh, what I'm asking or what I'm saying, but. Well, I, I think it does. Uh, I'm trying to do some pattern recognition as you go through that. And, and I would say if you trained to create a stronger neural engram, so you've now developed a lifting engram where you don't have to think of all of these little things. Initially, when you're establishing the engram, yes, you have to think about all of these things. Where am I going to stiffen? Where am I going to release? Mm -hmm. uh, some people, when you coach them, oh, I want you to centrate down your shoulders and then pull with a pulse. And they can't because they couldn't separate stiffening their torso from stiffening right. their shoulders. Yeah. So... But, you know, again, people are people. There's all different patterns that a great coach will figure out and know what coaching cues. But uh, eventually, this is why athletes practice. Uh, mm. They repeat movements and then they rehearse them in their minds, which is the visualization part. The rehearsal strengthens the engram to the point mm. that they are now in what we call a flow state. So they're just flowing through the lifts or the 
throws or the, uh, you know, uh, it might be a jujitsu match and, you know, they've got three moves now to get out of this submission or whatever it happens to be. But yeah, to reach that flow state, which is what I think you're talking about, yeah. um, is fabulous. But uh, some people have it in them and others, they have to train that uh, what's called an engram and then let it flow. For for a, like let's say an Olympic lifter, um, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if this is true, but is it is it true that like um, if they're going for that world record, that they probably may have not practiced that a whole bunch. Like sometimes it's some of these things might be their you know their first or second lift to kind of hit that world record. Like, and if that's the case, then you're not necessarily able to practice get to that flow state at that point, right? Because you would have then practiced that. So like, how does somebody get to that world record level, um, without being able to get to that flow state? Oh, I wish I could answer that. And, mm. and I, I'd be <laughs> so much wiser. Um, I, I can riff on it. I can't give sure. you a, a direct answer. So I I've been involved with, uh, several world record performances where yeah. it was the first time the athlete had ever done it. Yeah. So, uh, like if you, I, I can use Brian and we're, we're best friends. We, we don't, he, he won't mind if I talk about his uh, personal situation. So he holds the world all time record for squatting load. Can he do it again? I don't think so. Mm. And he doesn't think so either. Something happened that day. And by the way, he was in COVID. So he was suffering. He had COVID at the time. He ripped his bicep tendon off. Oh God! People don't know this. He ripped his bicep tendon off 10 days, I think, before the world record. And uh, he, uh, he had it surgically reattached after. Uh, but again, people don't realize. But something happened that day. He'd never squatted that. Uh, he was close. But uh, I, I forget where he'd, he'd previously been. But this was a good chunk over, over that. And he just mm. did it. And, and it was beautiful. He just flew out of the hole and it came together. And I can think of uh, high jumps, for example, which is a single effort measurable score, uh, a long jump. Uh, um, a long drive. Mm -hmm. Now, have you ever been to a driving range and you hit a bucket of balls and there's one ball you weren't thinking about it? And 100%. you just hit that one ball and it uncorked. And suddenly, uh, for me, uh, you know, like a 260-yard drive would be pretty cool. Mm. And where did that come from? Oh, let me try and do it again. I can't. <laughs> nope. 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 So, you know, uh, something happened. Now, I, I know enough about it that I know what happened. But can I then replicate that with the next engram expression of that move? And, and the, the, the answer is I can't. But that's why all these guys are on the PGA Tour and I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know if that answers your question or not. It's, it's, it's a real uh, variable thing. And sometimes the stars align. And the body has, if we're still talking neurology, yeah. there are the engrams, the movement tape that the person runs and expresses the movement. Mm -hmm. Now we go to internal mechanics again, and all through the linkage, there are little loops, and many of them are 
inhibitory loops, and some of them are facilitating loops. Mm. For some reason, they inhibited the inhibitors. Now we're going back two layers into internal mechanics. So there's a natural uh, inhibitor there that tries to not let you destroy your joint. Mm. Now there's an inhibitor to the inhibitor. Boy, it's, it's fascinating. So for some alignment of the stars, uh, but you know, it wasn't magic. It was, it's scientifically explainable. It's just, I don't have the science in that particular case to have all the measures and, and explain what inhibited the inhibitor that allowed the performance to be unleashed. But it, it only happened once. Yeah. And, and, and it makes, it makes me think like these athletes, like you said, a golfer, anyone who has to repeat these movements over and over again, and they can do so. And at a really high level, um, you know, think of someone like Tiger Woods, who's had his entire body's broken down, right? Yeah. Like you talk about the inhibiting the inhibitors. That's probably where he's going in many cases. Hey, I'm not allowed to talk about that. Okay. All right. Yeah, there's all sorts of confidentiality. So okay. Yeah. All right. Um sorry. That's okay. Now you've got me more curious, but it's all good. Um, but I guess in general, forget about Tiger as a specific example, but somebody who like externally they gotta produce the same movement over and over again. Internally, their body is saying, I can't handle this, like the same movement. Um and so it's like, you got to stop what you're doing, but these athletes are able to inhibit that inhibitor, right? Is that what, kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I think you might be more into the psychological realm okay. now. Okay. And uh, I can think of uh, one athlete who was suffering terribly with the flu. Yeah. And the world championship was in Florida outside. And mm. it was a uh, seven minute event. And they had several heats and then the final. They're already running a high temperature with the flu. Hmm. And uh, a normal person like you or I would say, I can't get out of bed today. Hmm. But they did. Yeah. They got down to the course. Yep. They ran the heats, won every one of them, and then won the world championship. Yeah. And then collapsed. Not, not, not dead, but uh, it, it took a chunk. So that is a psychological toughness mm. that you ignore all of these other signals. And, uh, okay. Yep. Um, let's shift you know to, athlete, by the way, probably. Yeah. Yeah. I sleep with her. It was Catherine. She won the, um, the, the, the senior masters world championships in, uh, 2019, I guess it was. Wow. Yeah, she went, came back with, I think it was five gold medals or something. But anyway, that, there's just an example of uh, extreme mental toughness that uh, you, you see in the great ones who, uh, uh, that was a bit disrespectful what I said, by the way, but I was trying to be mildly uh, entertaining. <laughs> no, it's good. I feel like I got to be talking to her, not to you. Oh, man. yeah. Of course you should be talking to her. God, she should be my, she's she's going to be my next nobody. Totally. Yeah. What, yeah, what, what a privilege uh, it's been 
to uh, to uh, really get to know someone of yeah. that special uh, ability. The few interactions I've had with Catherine, she's such a sweet person. Just she awesome. is. Yeah, she yeah. is. But that's yeah. when I was talking about when an athlete can flip the switch. Yeah. And uh, they become killers. Goodness. Okay. I'm definitely going to be emailing her to talk to her. At some point, so. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, As you know, she's a sports psychology consultant. She can, yeah. she can talk about all of that, but oh, you, you won't amazing. find a more humble. Uh, yeah. Well, she has to be very tolerant because she sure. puts, puts up with my nonsense every day. But uh, <laughs> no, she'd be a wonderful uh, guest for you to talk yeah. to. Yeah. Um, Stu, we've talked about strength skill a, a little bit. I want to talk about some of the other skills, speed. Let's talk, we, and we got a little bit into it. The, 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 to create that speed skill, what are your observations? What have you, and, and I know you've done some of this research too, about like, you know, the pulse and relax and pulsing kind of thing. Um, so we can talk about a little bit more of that, but we talk about the speed athlete, the speed skill, what are keys to developing that kind of skill? Uh, select your parents, number one. Okay. Now, even though uh, you've selected your parents and they've bestowed upon you special genes, it doesn't mean your brothers and sisters get it. Mm. Uh, I've worked with uh, two top medalist Olympic sprinters. And one of them had, I think it was six siblings. None of them were athletes. And yet this one is the, basically the, the fastest or the second fastest person in the world. It's amazing. Um, so somehow that uh, came together. Um, but the next thing, uh, yes, uh, well, if you don't have this, you won't be a world-class sprinter. And that's the ability to contract muscle quickly, but more importantly, to relax as quickly. Mm -hmm. So I think you might've been around when we were doing the muscle relaxation experiments or was that before your time? Would that be like when, um, like just with like GSP for instance, and you do yeah, that. some of the MMA yeah. athletes, yeah, I yeah, think yeah, that yeah. was during your tenure. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, with yeah. Us. Yeah. yeah. So when you take, uh, so UFC combat athletes, so obviously they're all fabulous. If you, yeah. if you're, if you're in that league, you're pretty special. So to, to just think of a, uh, a strike. Is this a video as well, by the way? Yep, it is. We can see you. We're good. Uh, but but it, so um, but the playback could be audio or video. So if I, I show you both. Yeah. yeah. So to use strength to create a strike, boom, you need a pulse. But muscles create force and stiffness. Mm. And so the if you don't let the pulse go quickly, you're so strong that you can't move. So you've got a boom. And then again, when the uh, projectile, your fist or your foot or whatever it happens to be, hits the target, you must pulse again to go through it. So boom, boom. You have to pulse, relax, pulse, relax. Think of coming out of the starting blocks. You prime a little bit of pre-stiffness in the core because that acts like a stone. But then when the hips fire, they act like a hammer. So they fire and propel a stone. If, the, if your spine was soft, they propel a rope and you can't mm -hmm. push rope. But very few people have the ability to strategically organize stiffness in one spot and a hammer pulse in the other and then turn it off very quickly. 
So, uh, and, and the original experiments were done by Leonid Matviev, uh, one of the great Russian scientists at the mm. Moscow Institute, and he was measuring Olympic lifters. And the Olympic lifters, if they're going to rip a bar into a snatch, they yeah. would rip, and then the bar, there's a point where they have to snap underneath it. Well, mm-hmm. um, at that point, you have to totally relax your body. Well, what a crazy. crazy thing. Who yeah. in their right mind is going to relax when they have yeah. 100 kilo over yeah. their head? Yeah. You yeah. know, it's such a mind bender. Yeah. But <laughs> that's one of the gifts, by the way, of, of training Olympic style. It's to keep honing in on the speed of the uh, concentric rip and then go into the relaxed eccentric and snap underneath it. But it's the same with the sprints, those who can pulse and then relax the leg so they get a faster recovery of the leg through and then another pulse. Um, You know, you see how much effort Olympic sprinters put into relaxing, relax, Mm -hmm. relax. You you know, you were talking about the Eastern Europeans and, and the Russians and whatnot some of the best conversations I've had with Jamaican sprint coaches, man, they know this stuff. They're mm. so good at it and they train it. And, you know, I've done some consulting there. My, my role was to uh, create a better, stiffer core mm-hmm. and they create better hammers. Mm. <laughs> and that's how you produce uh, s- speed, which I think is your, your question. So, uh, what, what would you, what would you I, see? The from... great ones, just to finish that off from yeah. a quantitative point of view, they can relax muscle uh, six times faster than you grad students and me. Uh, I was working with uh, an athlete uh, about a month ago, who's, mm-hmm. who's again, t- top level uh, female in her sport. And uh, she just had her hands over a dowel, the dowel that's in the corner here. And I dropped the stick. And they have to snatch it and catch it. Yeah, it, it's now you can strength train, work in the weight room all you like. It won't enhance your speed of relaxation. Those are very special drills. And again, a Jamaican sprint coach knows it. A Russian weightlifting coach knows it. How often? Am I consulting in a top-level football program in the U.S. and the strength coaches talk about rate of relaxation in right. the weight room? Right. It's, it's unheard of. No. So, uh, you know, there's statistics that are kind of interesting. When you look at the 40-yard uh, sprint times of high schoolers coming into a college football program mm-hmm. and then measure their 40-yard their time when they leave, do you know a lot of the time it's slower? Now I get it. They're bigger and stronger and and all the rest of it. However, these are all very, very interesting discussion points. These these Jamaican coaches, these Russian coaches, um, are they training relaxation as part of the movement that they're trying to get the athlete to perform? Or do you notice if it's a separate kind of drill altogether? Starts out as a separate drill to get some of the base neurology. And then that gets transferred to the sport. And that's, that's a whole nother discussion say, yeah. on, on itself. <laughs> so the transfer, again, you know, you and I can talk about this. Can I talk about this to most other people? They won't have a clue. Yeah. So yes, you, you, you train to create the base ability, shall we say, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, but what's the transfer of what you're doing in the training center, the gym, the whatever, uh, into the expression in the sport? And that is, uh, again, mm. I, I see things on social media and uh, I don't think they are even aware of mm. the skill of the transfer function. I must have I must have got it wrong then because or or maybe like because when I used to train the basketball team and when I first learned from you about this pulse relaxation pulse relaxation what I used to have the basketball guys do is in terms of training just like their foot speed or or their sprinting speed as I would actually have them you know do it in the movement and so yeah. you know I sometimes I'd have them initiate a sprint for a couple of strides and then completely just relax and it might just be even having them like fall down or something like that in a safe way. Um, I wouldn't necessarily do these kind of base drills first. And so now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, maybe I should have done well, that. Well, that, that's okay. You yeah. can still make progress. Hmm. So, you know, let's go back to the sprint uh, analogy once again, because people are uh, familiar with the A's and B strides of uh, sprinting. Yeah. That's all about uh, quick feet yeah. and faster turnover and downhill running, um, et cetera. So now you work on loosening the jaw hmm. open your hands up relax be chill and now let's do it again faster a's and b's i want faster foot speed i want more relaxation hmm. through uh where where you're holding tension which is translating into the joint that you're trying to let fly but it's 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 hard to yeah, uh, yeah. and again it, it's easy for some people the great ones, but it's, it's hard. You know, it's funny. I'll, I'll, I'll teach a core stiffening exercise to someone and then they can't do a push up because now they've frozen their shoulders. <laughs> and what I was yeah. trying to do was to get them to do a clapping push up and back down again and a double clap, triple clap, mm. uh, where you have to, uh, relax, you know, pulse, relax, pulse. And they're so confused. Uh, and yet others, who, who get it, they win. <laughs> my, my first personal experience with this sort of pulse relax thing was, I don't know if you know this about me. I was, I was a trained black belt in Taekwondo a long time ago. And, yeah. yeah. Um, I remember something about that. Yeah. I, and, that's why I always treated you with respect. I never wanted oh, to well, see uh, your fury. <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, when I, when I became a black belt, my master at the time, he, He's like, all right, let's 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 spar, and uh, we're sparring in front of all the other junior belts or whatever. And I was like, all right, I was like fourteen or fifteen, and, and so I was like, okay, let's see if I can I can hit this guy right. And to my teacher, my master, and so I was like, okay, I'm just gonna stay really relaxed, and then I just popped him with this jab right in the nose, and I just remember the feeling of like I was so relaxed, and then I just immediately like yeah stiffened through the shoulder relaxed and then boom stiffened right at the end and it was magic and he was just like he was so caught off guard that i was able to get past his his you know his his defense there and then of course he knocked me out after the fact for doing that but you know it was, <laughs> it was i literally i got knocked out right after uh but it was it was fun when that moment happened so that was my experience of of stiffen and pulse and relax so yeah yeah yeah, well, there you paid a little tuition, but look at look at the gift it gave you. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, speed skill. We talk about strength that, skills. Another, uh, you know, we'll we'll talk with athletes, and they're all down and whatnot, and I'll say, oh, well, you just paid a little tuition. Let's get back to work. <laughs> I like that.
I like that. Yeah. Um, the elastic athlete, those, those throwers, those golfers, um, maybe the same kind of thing, perhaps with the pulse relaxation, but in terms of the characteristics or observations you see on these elastic athletes, what sticks out for you? Well, uh, several things, okay. uh, whereas, uh, and again, I, I, you're hitting me out of the blue here. So I'll go to bed tonight and I'll, I'll say, oh, why did I answer so stupidly <laughs> to Rupesh? But um, for that sprinter that we were just talking about, I'm looking for symmetry. Don't mm. want any right or left snags. You gave me the example of a thrower. They're going to have to be highly asymmetric. And have they tuned the asymmetries to optimally store and then recover elastic energy? Then are they using the right technique and sequence? So to crack the whip, you know, you can get a bull whip and, and try and get it to snap. And as you perfect the timing and the technique, all of a sudden it just cracks. Mm. Uh, but it might take a while to get there. So there's just an example of... Uh, tuning the elastics, then honing the technique to really get the golf head, uh, golf club head speed up or racket speed or speed of a fist off the, the back rear right toe, you know, through the linkage. Mm. Uh, if, if we're talking Taekwondo as an example. Yeah. So again, we get back to, you got to know the sport. You've got to know this machine that is, a linkage with force producers, uh, stiffening elements that guide and control emotions, yep. uh, run by a computer that is trying to express an engram that didn't sleep so well the night before, so now it's a little slow. Mm. You know what I mean? It just never ends. It's uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, uh, be careful with strength with the elastic athlete. Uh, I think we saw the upshot of an era that the professional golfers went through and uh, they started to do Olympic lifting and whatnot under the influence of uh, a couple. And we saw some terrific flame outs. It was tragic. And mm. then you'll see, oh, that kind of disappeared. <laughs> now That's true. Better, you know, more modest uh, strength training. But the ones who are there for the long game are uh, not the ones who are pumping heavy weights in, in, in a weight room. Yeah. So again, realizing that these are elastic athletes and their athleticism may not be enhanced, even when the ones who were strength training did their long drive uh, and uh, increase. No. <laughs> mm. So, you know, it was the wrong tool and uh, it was, it was detuning the uh, athleticism and the resilience of uh, that as a category of uh, elastic athletes. And, you know, now I'm thinking of uh, hockey players. So many pro hockey players play a lot of golf in the summers. Yeah. Well, uh, when you think of it, there's a, a great parallel of uh, uh, elasticity there. And uh, I saw an interesting statistic a little while ago, where as uh, I forget how many years they went back, 20 or 25 years, and they looked at the top goal scorers who were on average getting close to 220 pounds and, mm. and all this kind of thing. And then the world changed with uh, 
much more of a Russian European uh, training uh, influence. And now uh, the athletes are just explosive mm -hmm. monsters with uh, great tuned uh, elastics. Uh, they don't train like they trained uh, 25 years ago. And the great goal scorers now, I think the, the sweet spot is somewhere around 180 pounds. Yeah, if you look at if you look at Connor McDavid, who's in in my city here, like he's yeah. not the biggest person there well, is, but he incredibly incredibly speedy. Yeah, yeah. So that 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 was a transformation, and the recognition of uh, the elastic uh, elements and how they train them. So uh, I I don't know uh, Connor. I know a little bit about his his orthopedic history, but I I, I personally have never uh, worked yeah. with him. But I know the crew that did. And they're savvy. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this question makes sense, but what role do fascial linkages play in an elastic athlete? Well, it can be huge. Yeah. Yeah. So this, uh, uh, think of a athlete who puts on, let's take a power lifter who puts on a lifting suit. Yeah. It massively changes their performance. Mm. Uh, you could put on a knee wrap and, uh, it would, uh, change uh athletic output and resilience by the way mm. uh, in in certain cases so tuning of the fascia i mean i had a, a an athlete i, I made a, a video uh, of it it's it's in our uh, assessment course actually i've got several examples where we will have an athlete on the table and we'll do something in their leg to create a nerve tension then i'll bring their arm over their head and they'll say oh my pain just went away out of my leg Good. Now extend your wrist. Oh yeah, there's the pain mm. in their leg. That <laughs> mm. is, you know, and all I'm doing is playing with uh, fascial tensions. I might spin the arm, and then again we'll see a manifestation uh, somewhere else. So this is all from a pain perspective, but it, yeah. it also very much has to do with tuning the springs. So the fascia, as you know, it, it covers every muscle fiber. Uh, you know, we, you remember experiments that we used to do on rats, for example, where mm. we would cut through half the muscle, measure the force potential, and it was almost all there, say 90%. Well, yeah. what, how did that happen? Even the muscle fibers that were cut were still connected in a parallel fashion with uh, fascia, and it was the fascia that was transmitting the force. They didn't need a tendon at the end. They were yeah. transmitting force to their neighbors, and then the whole fascia epimesium and uh, 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 well, the covering of muscle was then transmitting force. And as you know, there are muscles that don't even have a tenderness connection. They just That's go into right. the fascia. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's something I must say that I've uh, become much more skilled myself in, I would say over the last 10 years, e even since I retired, I've become more uh, appreciative of it. And, uh, you know, uh, working with the great fascial gurus, uh, mm -hmm. not the pretenders, but the ones who create <laughs> Olympic athletes and restore professional careers. Yeah. They are special. They're the real deal. And they know how to uh, tune the soft tissues. In, in terms of actually helping with the recovery of those soft tissues, particularly fascia, um, is there, uh, do you notice with those, coaches is there something actively that they're doing there because i imagine you still want to maintain some level of stiffness within this fascia you don't want to necessarily over 
like if you think about doing some soft tissue work, you probably don't want to be overly aggressive on some of these fascial tissues, I would think. The gurus are, so, some of them are so gentle. I mean, I think of, uh, oh, she's going to kill me. Anne, Anne Frederick, you know, the book Stretch to Win. Okay. If you work with Anne, she is so gentle. Uh, and I've seen her work with a, an athlete and uh, we were joking that she was working on their hip and she was there for 20 minutes. She's not a, she's not a big woman. And she mm. was there with this athlete's leg for 20 minutes. And then all of a sudden it started to give and go. And she said, well, I'm romancing the joint and I'm romancing mm. the neural system to allow the fascial system. And then you start realizing how innervated the fascial system is. And she had to inhibit the inhibitors. Mm. <laughs> she knew how to do it wow. and uh, made remarkable uh, progress. Uh, and then I think of someone who has these magical fingers, uh, say someone like Barents Betos in uh, uh, Los Angeles, who okay. can take an athlete, feel around in a joint and doesn't massage it, doesn't do gross things. His finger goes to a target and knows how to release that one little thing and maybe keep all the other things the proper stiffness to control and keep joint integrity and all the rest of it. So he's yeah. again, just a master of the craft. And uh, these people are, you know, all of them are sort of the, the best known unknown to, yep. <laughs> in, in the world of high performance. People know who these gurus are, yep. um, but the, the, they're, they're not in the public. They're not on social media. They're, they're but, you know, it, at the Olympics, everyone knows them. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But that's um, my perception after working with them. Uh, and, and, you know, I think of a guy like Clayton Skaggs, who uh, you, you, you may recall, uh, he's now the medical director of the Central Institute for Human Performance. What he does, I can't even explain it, but mm. he works on the fashion and different things and, and just takes pain away and unleashes movement. And it's un unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe just to sort of, wrap up on a couple of things. Yeah, I'm going to have to go fairly soon. I've got a patient uh, shortly. No problem. Um, final, final two questions. One, uh, any sort of last observations that you have of world-class athletes that you think you want people to know? I, I, I can't think of anything... Uh, and unless you can can think of something no not I mean, again i mean as you know i i can respond to to people i i don't go out looking for them yeah uh, they just come to me so i i don't i'm not i'm struggling to look for a question or a a topic here uh i'd just as soon ask about your daughter <laughs> <laughs> I think where my mind was going at is, um, you know, like, uh, again, 15, 16 years ago, that uncovery around pulse relaxation, that was sort of like a really, it seemed like a really forming thought um, to like now really focus on like the neurology, the neural drive. Like what's, what's something that you're looking at right now that you're really curious about that you're like, man, that is really something there when it comes to a world-class athlete. There, there is no such thing as a single thing. Okay. I'm getting better all the time at appreciating the package. 
Yeah. My assessments get more detailed all the time and my impressions back to the athlete and the plan on what they should do probably improves in its comprehensiveness and in a staged progression. So here's how I recommend you start. Here are some of the benchmarks to know when we should consider some of these other things. And then at that point, it's going to need a reassessment to know mm. your response. And then how we have to go to reach the goals that we've defined up here that will get you into the Olympics this summer or yeah. back into the NFL or whatever the, the, the yeah. case may be. Yeah, yeah. Great. Um, Stu, my friend, I really appreciate you. I really like this, uh, means a lot for you to spend some time with me here. Um, always love talking to you about, uh, this work, but also get really just glad to know that health wise, you're doing great. And the next McGill to be on my podcast will be Catherine McGill. So you don't have to worry about that. Um, I'm, I'm looking yeah, forward I, to I talking think you to and your audience will really en enjoy her. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Can I, I say I, something Rupesh? Absolutely. Of course. So as a professor, uh, you know, we spent pretty intense times together uh, mm. for, for those years. And uh, you develop a relationship with your students. I mean, I spent more time with you than I did my own kids during mm. those times, when you think about it. So you are my academic son. Mm. And I'll always uh, th think uh, like that, as I do with... Uh, almost all of my students. <laughs> and uh, so I'm so proud of uh, what you've done and how you've been confident to uh, reach out and expand your career and, and make uh, big contributions uh, as you're doing now uh, in, uh, in your government work. So uh, anyway, I just- Thank you. That I means that- tell you that. Thank I'd you, give you a means... hug if you were here. <laughs> <laughs> I have to see you in person. I told you I've, I've been meaning to come visit you in the summer and I haven't had a chance to. So one day okay. that's going to happen. I'll well, bring my family come, over. I'll give you a beer and I'll have a water. <laughs> I thought you were going to say I'm one of those special people that you'll have a beer with, Stu. I will. I will. Okay. For awesome. you, of course, we're going to have a beer. Great. I appreciate you. Uh, just stick around for a couple, uh, one minute. So make sure we upload the, the feed here, but, um, sure. yeah, thanks so much. And thanks everyone for tuning in, like subscribe, do all those wonderful things and we'll see you on the next episode. Cheers.